Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I never knew but one white man who bore the name Hemings. He was an Englishman and my great-grandfather. He was captain of an English trading vessel which sailed between England and Williamsburg, Virginia, then quite a port. My great-grandmother was a full-blooded African and possibly a native of that country. She was the property of John Wells, a Welshman. As to myself, I was named Madison by the wife of James Madison, who afterwards President of the United States. Miss Madison happened to be at Monticello at the time of my birth and begged for the privilege of naming me and promised my mother a fine present for the honor. She consented, and Miss Madison dubbed me by the name that I now acknowledge. But like many promises of white folks to the slaves, she never gave my mother anything. Of my father, Thomas Jefferson, I knew more of his domestic than his public life during his lifetime. It was only sincere in his death that I learned of the latter, except that he was foremost a man of the land and that he held many important trusts, including that of president. I learned to read by inducing white children to teach me letters. What else I know of books I picked up here and there, and now I can read and write. I was almost 21 and a half of age when my father died. James Madison Hemings eighteen and five began on a rather chilling note both in terms of the weather as well as in the political climate, as we discussed in our last episode. It was in the midst of all this that, on January 19th, Madison Hemings was born at the plantation of his father, an estate in Piedmont, Virginia, known as Monticello. Naturally, his mother was present for his first days on earth, but his father, who had just recently been elected to a second term as president, was nearly 100 miles away in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Two days after Madison's birth, President Jefferson wrote to Martha Jefferson Randolph, his daughter by his late wife, Martha Jefferson. While concerning himself in the letter about Martha's recent bout of ill health and that of his granddaughter, Maria Epps, he did not ask after Sally Hemings or any members of the Hemings family, though, naturally, he would have known that Sally was pregnant the last time he saw her. He ended the letter asking Martha to, quote, kiss all my dear little ones for me. But one can imagine that the newborn Madison would not be included in that number. This, dear listener, is where we begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Country Boy of the One Mike Black History Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. With each episode of his podcast, Country Boy introduces his audience to little-known individuals or events in Black history which had a major impact on African Americans as well as the course of American history. Recent episodes have looked at the history of the Negro League, the life of Ma Rainey, and the differing views of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. I'll have a link on the source notes page for this episode, or you can search for One Mike Black History in your favorite podcast app of choice. It has always been my intention since I started the Jefferson series to do an episode on the Hemings family. 
and I soon settled on Madison Hemings' birth as the point in our narrative when I would do this deep dive. For Jefferson and for the nation, as the new presidential term was about to begin, it was a time that situations were beginning to change for a number of folks. For the Hemings family, though, another term in office for Jefferson meant little change in their day-to-day lives. Change for them was based on different factors, some of which they were able to control in a limited sphere, while others were beyond their control. But at the center of their lives was the same man who was, in 1805, at the center of the political universe of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. As historian Annette Gordon-Reed describes when she had an opportunity to study the original version of Jefferson's farm book, she was overwhelmed in looking through it with the reality that, quote, the course of the lives of grown men, women, and their children were set by this one man. For this episode, the focus will be on those individuals and their stories, or at least what we are able to glean from the existing historical record. We should note that, as so little of the lives and experiences of enslaved individuals in the century since the first African individual was brought unwilling to the shores of Virginia in 1619, there are many details and experiences, thoughts, dreams, and fears the things that make a life, that are forever lost to us. Thanks to the work of many historians over the years, though, all is not lost. And through the existing records, including narratives handed down from generation to generation in families, as well as archaeological and scientific studies, we've been able to bring forward into the present the existence of individuals who those who wrote histories in the past tried to erase. Now, I do want to manage expectations at the beginning. This episode is not going to be a comprehensive study of the enslaved individuals at Monticello or even of the entire Hemings family. To do either of those larger topics justice in this medium would require a full podcast series. As this is a podcast focused on the American presidency, I do want to keep this episode within that scope. But the intersection of the Hemings family and the presidency of Thomas Jefferson does give us an opportunity to get a glimpse of the lives and conditions of enslaved individuals in the late 18th and early 19th century. I intend to keep the focus on a few individuals in the Hemings family who were closest to Jefferson, but if you are interested in learning more details, I highly recommend Annette Gordon-Reed's The Hemingses of Monticello, which was a primary source for this episode. Her exhaustive research is an impressive work of scholarship into the lives and challenges of this extraordinary family. With that said, let us dive in. To start us on our journey in this episode, the fact that we are even able to talk about a Hemings family at all speaks to their unique situation. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, One of the many ways that slave societies sought to drive home slaves' inferior status was to be careless about the use of slave surnames, signaling that bond people had no families that white society had to respect. Indeed, Many of the forenames that we know of those who are enslaved are only because white slave owners wrote them in inventory catalogs or wills describing their property. As noted by historians Ned and Constance Sublette, quote, most enslaved African Americans lived and died without writing so much as their names. The Hemingses, though, were one of only a couple of enslaved families that Jefferson made a point of noting their last names. Within the enslaved community at Monticello, though, it does seem like, quote, Slaves used their full first names and last names when describing who they were, and the very process of deciding what last name they would take for themselves was significant, as we shall soon see. As described by Gordon Reed, quote, Elizabeth Hemings, known as Betty, was the matriarch of a family that over four generations numbered in the dozens. She was born in 1735 to an unnamed African woman and a Captain Hemings. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, 
As the daughter of an enslaved African woman and an Englishman, Elizabeth Hemings physically embodied the strange and devastating encounter between black and white in colonial Virginia. Though little was known about her father, we know even less about her mother, not where in Africa she was from or even her name, just that, as told by her great-grandson, she was a quote-unquote full-blooded African. Captain Hemings, meanwhile, was quote, the captain of an English trading vessel who met the mother of his child somewhere in the vicinity of Williamsburg. Upon Elizabeth's birth, Captain Hemings is said to have, quote, offered an extraordinarily large price for her, but her owner at the time refused to sell her, and despite the fact that Elizabeth was his flesh and blood, by Virginia law, enslaved status was matrilineally inherited. Thus, Hemings had no recourse or rights to his own daughter. Eventually, he left Virginia alone. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Elizabeth and her mother were owned by Martha Epps, then were transferred to John Wales as part of the marriage settlement between John and Martha in 1746. For longtime listeners of the podcast, the family names of Wales and Epps may sound familiar. Indeed, Jefferson's daughter Maria was married to Representative John Wales Epps of Virginia. While we don't have time to go into all the intricacies in this episode, just know that the Epps, Wales, Randolph, and Jefferson families would all become very much intertwined. The Eppses were early immigrants to Virginia, arriving in the 1630s, and they were a well-established family in the colony by 1746. John Wales, by contrast, was a newcomer. He had originally been born in England and immigrated over to Virginia at some point in his early life thanks to a prominent benefactor. Though Wales would establish himself as an independent agent in Virginia and had gained enough prominence to win Martha's hand in marriage by the time he was 31, Gordon Reed notes that Wales would always be rather of an outsider in Virginia society. Quote, For all of his wealth and participation in economic activities in the Williamsburg area, Wales seems not to have made a lasting mark on the place. He was there, but not there, in some very telling ways. His relationship with Elizabeth Hemings, however, would establish a lasting legacy. As we'll see, throughout her life, it is difficult to get a definite understanding of Elizabeth's role in the various households in which she would serve. And such was the case in the Wales household. It is believed that Elizabeth served as a nurse to Wales's daughter Martha, who was born in 1748. Part of the reason this is believed to be the case is that Martha Epps Wales, Martha's mother, passed away shortly after her birth. Again from Gordon Reed, quote, a young enslaved girl who was used to working in the house would have been considered suitable for the task of looking after a young child, or at the very least, for helping an older woman do it. Elizabeth Hemings would herself become a mother in 1753 when she was around the age of 18, and she would go on to have somewhere between 12 and 14 children. The reason for the uncertainty is that the records kept for enslaved people were not always uniform or exact for a variety of reasons. We do have confirmation that Elizabeth did at least have 12 children, and we know that these children did not all have the same father. Given the instability inherent in the life of enslaved individuals, this is not a surprising situation, nor is it surprising that some of the children had a white father. We'll go more into the lives of some of Elizabeth's children in a few minutes, but the first four children she had with an unknown partner who is believed to have been a black man were Mary, who was born in 1753, 
Martin, born in 1755, Betty, born in 1759, and Nancy, born in 1761. It was sometime around or after the birth of Nancy that circumstances changed for Elizabeth. John Wales, after the death of his first wife, had taken a second wife, but she died after giving birth to three daughters. Wales married again, but his third wife only lasted a year before she too passed on. Sometime after the death of his third wife and around the time of Nancy's birth, Wales began a sexual relationship with Elizabeth Hemings. Naturally, this relationship poses us with an ethical issue. Namely, what do we call it? The term concubine has been used to describe both Elizabeth and later her daughter Sally, but while it reflects the lower status of the relationship in comparison to marriage, I have to question the implication that the relationship was fully consensual. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, Except in the most extreme circumstances, slave owners in Virginia were the law in their realm. While interracial sex was publicly frowned upon, it was also quite prevalent in Virginia at the time and in future generations. The firm line, however, was drawn at interracial marriage. Again, from Gordon Reed, quote, As long as Wales did not try to elevate Elizabeth Hemings and their children to the status of white people, he would be left alone to do with his property as he pleased. That said, however, we also don't want to completely objectify Elizabeth, for, as Gordon Reed notes, quote, The femininity, womanhood, of enslaved women is most often portrayed through their status as mothers, victims of rape, or degraded sexual objects. Though limited in her ability, Elizabeth could have actively used this relationship with John Wales to her benefit and to the benefit of her children. And indeed, even at this stage in the family's history, it seems as if the Hemings family was distinguished from the other individuals that John Wales enslaved. In his will, Elizabeth was the only enslaved individual who he listed with a last name. One item of note that suggests that the relationship brought some benefit to the Hemingses is that two of Elizabeth's grandchildren used a variation of John Wales's name for their children. As already stated, names were very important to the enslaved community, and we see in the Hemings family a particular interest in keeping certain names alive in the family. Again from Gordon Reed, quote, It was their way of reinforcing family connections in a world that gave no legal recognition to enslaved families. Thus, it is interesting to see John Wales's name in that mix. Elizabeth would have six children by John Wales, Robert in 1762, James in 1765, Thenia in 1767, Critta in 1769, Peter in 1770, and finally, in 1773, the same year that Wales passed away, Elizabeth gave birth to a daughter named Sarah, who is better known to history as Sally. Wales's death, as often happened for enslaved individuals, brought with it a period of uncertainty. Indeed, we saw this with Gabriel in episode 2.21. When a master died, there was a great deal of trepidation about whether families would be split apart or what the new conditions would be for the enslaved individuals. Everything could be turned upside down in a moment for those enslaved, and they legally had no say in what happened. Luckily for Elizabeth and her children, in the immediate aftermath of John Wales's death, they were not separated. Instead, they were inherited by Wales's daughter Martha, who, by that point, was married to a young Virginian named Thomas Jefferson. Thus, by Virginia law, they became Jefferson's property. Originally, the Hemingses were moved to Guinea, which was a farm in Amelia County that John Wales had owned. Before too long, they were moved to Elk Hill in Goochland County. Ultimately, though, one by one, they were moved to the estate, which would become the family home for decades afterwards, Monticello. 
Before we switch gears to discuss her children, let's continue with Elizabeth's story for a minute longer. After she was moved to Monticello, Elizabeth would have a relationship with Joseph Nielsen, the white chief carpenter at the plantation, and their son John was born in 1776. Her final child, Lucy, was born in 1777, but it is not known for certain whether she too, like John, was Joseph Nielsen's child. Either way, Nielsen, by the time John was three, had exited their lives, leaving his position at Monticello. Nielsen would ultimately marry another woman, and the two would establish a household in nearby Charlottesville. Again, as with her time in the Wales household, it is uncertain as to what role exactly Elizabeth served at Monticello. It is believed that she was likely responsible for tending to Martha Jefferson's children, and there is an indication that later in life, she was responsible for looking after her own large number of grandchildren. Elizabeth was given a residence on down the mountain from the main house, which, though significantly larger than the residences of some of the other enslaved individuals that lived closer to the main house, was still at 170 square feet small compared to other contemporary slave quarters in Virginia. Most of her socializing with family, friends, and neighbors, as well as meals, would have taken place outside. To that end, it is known through archaeological excavations of the site of her residence that she, quote, accumulated a good quantity of consumer goods that she seems to have purchased herself. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, she seemed to favor blue and had distinct preferences about the types of wear she used for different purposes. Except for some time in the early 1790s when she was moved to Tufton, one of the farms at the southern base of Monticello, for a reason that is unknown to us in the present, Elizabeth lived at Monticello until her death in 1807. Having lived far longer than the average life expectancy for the time, Elizabeth witnessed her family grow and push the limits of enslavement. Though she would witness some triumphs, including some of her children gaining their freedom, Elizabeth would also be witness to personal tragedies for her progeny. One thing, however, was clear from early on. Life for the next generation of Hemingses was not going to be the same as it was for their mother. While we don't have time to cover all the details of the lives of all of Elizabeth's children, I would like to hit upon some highlights before we dive into the life of Sally Hemings. To start with, it appears that Elizabeth's oldest daughter, Mary, around the time that Elizabeth was involved with Joseph Nielsen, had a sexual relationship and a child with Nielsen's apprentice, William Fawcett. The reason Fawcett is believed to be the father of Mary's child is that the child, Joseph, took the last name Fawcett and went on, once he had children, to name one of his sons, William. Joseph Fawcett would come to play a key role at Monticello in the early 19th century, but we'll come back to that. One of the key things to know about Mary Hemings is that her life reflects just how different the Hemings children, who were not children of John Wales, were treated from the Wales-Hemings children. For Mary, she witnessed three of her children being given away as wedding presents. Her daughter Betsy, at the age of 15, was given as a wedding present to Maria Jefferson upon her marriage to John Wales Epps. And Betsy would go on to have two children by John Wales Epps, though it's unclear as to whether these children were born before or after Maria's death. As for Mary Hemings, she was ultimately able to escape slavery, but the price that she paid for it was a heavy one. Mary was leased out to a successful merchant in Charlottesville named Thomas Bell and moved to Bell's home with three of her children, Molly, Joseph, and Betsy. Bell and Mary Hemings ultimately began having a sexual relationship which would result in two children, Robert and Sarah. Though by Virginia law they could not be legally married, Mary, quote, found in Bell a man willing to live openly with her and to treat her and their children as if they were bound together as a legal family. 
It seems like Charlottesville society accepted the arrangement between Bell and Hemings, as Bell would grow to become a prominent member of the community and would also form a strong friendship with the leading figure of the community, Thomas Jefferson. When Jefferson returned from his time in Paris, Thomas Bell approached him about purchasing Mary and their children. By this time, Mary's daughter Molly had already been given away to Martha Randolph, her son Daniel had been given away as well, and Joseph and Betsy would be returned to Monticello. Mary would only have her two children by Thomas Bell with her. Bell ultimately died in 1800, but with his death, Mary and her children achieved a pseudo-freedom. Though Bell did not go through the legal process to free them, as it was rather convoluted and not guaranteed to work, he acknowledged his children by Mary and made provisions in his will for them to inherit at least part of his estate, as if they were already free. Gordon Reed points out that this was a gamble, but it seems that, quote, no one rose to stand against his, Bell's, preferences, which is yet another example of how the law works on the ground, so to speak. When everyone, for whatever reason, agrees to look the other way, individuals can easily circumvent legal rules. Mary Hemings and her family with Thomas Bell would continue to live as free individuals in Charlottesville, with her grandson, Robert Scott, who was a musician, playing for the Marquis de Lafayette upon his visit to the area in 1824. Martin Hemings, Elizabeth's oldest son, was around the age of 17 or 18 when he became the butler at Monticello. As described by Gordon Reed, Martin, quote, had the reputation for being the most difficult of Elizabeth's children, from the perspective of a slave owner, and aggressive. Jefferson family tradition cast him as the prototypical surly manservant, whose saving grace, in the eyes of whites, was his extreme loyalty to Jefferson. It was Martin who was left in charge of Monticello when Jefferson fled from the advancing British in 1781. As was the case with the oldest Hemings males, Martin was given a good amount of freedom to leave Monticello and seek work for himself, on the condition that, when Jefferson called for him, he would return. To this end, Martin went out into the world to find work, even at one point hiring himself out to James Monroe as a butler. Ultimately, though, Jefferson and Martin had a falling out, and in November 1792, Jefferson wrote that Martin had asked him to arrange for him to be sold to someone else. There is nothing in existing records which gives us even a clue as to what the quarrel between the two was about, nor, though Jefferson gives no account of it, should we conclude that Martin did not ask for his freedom first before asking to be sold. It could be that Jefferson's unwillingness to work with Martin in order for him to obtain his freedom was the cause of the dispute. We have no way of knowing. It seems, however, that a buyer was never found for Martin, and the last mention that we have of him is in Jefferson's farm book in 1794. It is possible that he either died or, like his sister Mary, ended up in a state of informal emancipation where he found his own work. Unfortunately, Martin will not be the only Hemings who simply drifts into the uncertain ether of the fog of history, with his history ending without a resolution. Another of Elizabeth's children, Betty Brown, would not suffer this fate. Betty, at the age of 15, was in fact the first member of the Hemings family to come to Monticello. She was moved in January 1774 to become Martha Jefferson's maid. The two of Betty's children that we need to make a note of are Wormley Hughes and Burwell Colbert. Both, as would Joseph Fawcett, would contemplate a large role in Monticello in the early 19th century. For now, though, let's skip ahead to the end of Betty's story, as she would continue on at Monticello long after her siblings and relatives, as well as, indeed, the Jefferson family itself had left. Her son Burwell, who had been given the keys to the main house, would go up to the mountain to check on the property as well as his mother until her death sometime after 1831. 
Let's shift gears a little and look at some of Elizabeth's children by John Wales. Robert Hemmings was the oldest of these children, and very early on in his life, he was assigned a key role at Monticello. At the age of 12, Robert became Jefferson's personal attendant, replacing Jupiter Evans, who had been in that role since Jefferson had left home to attend the College of William and Mary in 1760. As Gordon Reed explains, quote, his wife's brother would now be the closest to him, Jefferson, physically, the keeper of secrets and the possessor of intimate knowledge of him, just by virtue of their being in daily proximity to one another. As Robert took over this role in 1774, when Jefferson was beginning his rise to national prominence, this meant that Robert would find himself traveling with Jefferson up and down the eastern seaboard. When talking about Robert, though, we can't help but also talk about his brother James, who was three years younger than him. It seems that Robert and James would at times alternate in serving as Jefferson's personal attendant. Indeed, in 1784, Robert's role would shift once more as he was apprenticed for two months to train to become a barber. In this training, Robert became the first member of the Hemings family to learn a trade. Despite his new skills, when Jefferson was appointed as the diplomat to France, the Virginia planner opted to bring James and not Robert with him to Europe. We'll discuss more about James's role in France in a few minutes, but staying with Robert for now, Jefferson's departure across the Atlantic would give Robert an opportunity for autonomy unlike any he had had to that point. Jefferson gave Robert permission to hire himself out while he was away, and thus, like his brother Martin, Robert would start to develop a life of his own outside of Monticello and away from Jefferson. As Gordon Reed notes, during that five and a half years, Robert, quote, more than learned the lesson that he could do without the man who legally owned him. Indeed, he could do without any owner at all. While working in Fredericksburg, Robert met Dolly, an enslaved woman who became his wife. When Jefferson became the first Secretary of State, he ordered Robert and James to accompany him to New York City, which was at that point the nation's capital. While James would remain with Jefferson, Robert soon returned to Fredericksburg in June 1790 to try to find work there in order to be close to Dolly. Now, though Jefferson had at times purchased other enslaved people to bring families together, from what we know, there was no attempt to purchase Dolly so that she and Robert could be together. Gordon Reed postulates that Robert by this point, quote, seems to have preferred working for people other than Jefferson. 1794 would be a pivotal year for Robert. By that point, Dolly was living in Richmond, and Robert worked with her owner, Dr. George Frederick Strauss, to devise a plan to achieve his freedom. The plan was that Strauss would purchase Robert from Jefferson, and then Hemings would repay Strauss for the expense. Now, we don't know for certain exactly why Robert didn't just approach Jefferson directly about working out an agreement to purchase his freedom. And again, just because Jefferson did not note a discussion of that sort happening doesn't mean that it didn't. However, we can speculate. So long as Robert was owned by Jefferson, he would be under the obligation to drop everything any time Jefferson called for him. It was the same deal that Jefferson had with his brothers Martin and James, and such a deal could potentially impede Robert's ability to earn enough money in Richmond to buy his freedom. By working through Strauss, Robert would be settled in Richmond and could apply himself fully to the task. Indeed, it would ultimately only take Robert nine months to repay Strauss and earn his freedom, the first member of the Hemings family to do so. However, Jefferson was incensed when he was told of the plan. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, Hemings sought to effectuate his emancipation, working with a third party's involvement that automatically put the third party, Strauss, on a par with Jefferson. He had been talking with someone besides Jefferson about his future. Jefferson felt that he had treated Robert and his brother James well over the years, giving them a certain amount of freedom and had earned their unquestioned loyalty. 
As Gordon Reed writes, quote, One wonders whether it ever crossed Jefferson's mind that they would want to be free, that these young men's experiences had created expectations that could never be fulfilled so long as they remained enslaved to him. Despite Jefferson's objections, by September 1795, Robert Hemings was a free man. At some point, Dolly, as well as their children, Elizabeth and Martin, were emancipated, and the family opted to remain in Richmond. Despite being trained as a barber, Robert would earn his living with a fruit stand, which would give him an opportunity to interact with many folks in and around the Richmond area. It is believed that at some point, Robert sustained an injury in one of his arms, which kept him from earning his living as a barber, but we have no verified details as to the nature of this injury. After his emancipation, Robert continued in the years and decades to come to travel to Monticello to visit with his family, and he also maintained a relationship with Jefferson. Finally, in his late 50s, Robert Hemings died as a free man in 1819. The wife of Robert's brother James, meanwhile, took a divergent path. At 19, James was brought to Paris by Jefferson in order to study French cuisine. He began his training in December 1784, but in order to be trained by French chefs, James also had to learn to speak French. Unlike Jefferson or his daughter Patsy, who had studied the language back in Virginia, James Hemings had to learn the language on the ground in France. Though Jefferson made wisecracks about James' linguistic skills and letters back to the U.S., Hemings learned enough French that by February 1786, he completed his apprenticeship and transitioned to more focused studies of French pastry making, studying under the chefs of French elites and nobles, including the chef for the Prince de Condé. In addition to learning culinary techniques and putting them to use in Jefferson's service, Hemings also hired a tutor in the latter part of the 1780s in order to, quote, learn more formal French. Hemings was able to pay for the tutor as well as other amenities while in France because Jefferson paid him a regular wage for his services. And indeed, the rate that Jefferson paid Hemings was above the going rates for cooks in Paris at the time. While Jefferson did at times pay wages to enslaved individuals in Virginia as well for their labor, Jefferson had a particular reason for wanting to keep James Hemings content while the two were in Paris. Namely, James Hemings could easily have become a free man in France. In Paris, enslaved people who were brought to the city could petition the Admiralty Court for their freedom. And during the entirety of the 18th century, the Admiralty Court had granted every petition for freedom. As James did interact with others in Paris, including members of the black community in the city, it is most likely that Hemings would have been aware of this. He would also likely have been aware how embarrassing such a petition would have been for Jefferson, not just because he tried to downplay his role as a slave owner, but also because Legally, Jefferson should have registered James Hemings with the local government upon their arrival, quote, so that they could keep track of which blacks were in the country, where they were, and when they had departed. Though the system was very lax and often not enforced, Jefferson was in the nation as an official representative of the U.S. government. His defiance of the law being made public could strain relations between the U.S. and France. For the five years he was in France, it seems that James was content with the situation. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, Hemings had free movement, as he did in Virginia, and was able to take part in Paris's many public spectacles, with Jefferson paying for necessities, clothes, a watch, shoes, and food. Hemings could use his money for his own purposes. For people like Hemings, those at or near the bottom of the social scale, there was much more to do, many more ways for him to assert himself in Paris than existed back in Virginia. 
By early October 1788, James Hemings officially became Jefferson's chef de cuisine at his residence in Paris, putting him in full control of the kitchen, as well as the assistants working in it. Again from Gordon Reed, quote, His position made him responsible for every success and failure regarding a critical component in that diplomatic household. Jefferson entertained on a large scale, as he did throughout his life. Hemings' talents were on constant display at meals that could be for a few people or for up to 30. Ultimately, though, Jefferson's time in Paris had to come to an end, and as Jefferson planned to return to the United States, James had a decision to make. By this point, though, it wasn't a decision that he would be making alone, for his youngest living Hemings sister had joined him in France. Soon after their arrival, Jefferson had decided to send back for his youngest daughter, Polly, who had been left in the care of her aunt, Elizabeth Epps, and her husband, Francis Epps, back in Virginia. The Eppses, however, were reluctant to send Polly as they had grown to enjoy her being a part of their household, and Polly herself was reluctant to be separated from them and the familiar surroundings they provided. Thus, the Eppses tried to avoid the issue in the hopes that Jefferson would change his mind, and they, along with Jefferson's sister, worked to dissuade him from the plan. With the long time that it took for correspondence to go back and forth across the Atlantic, two years would pass before they finally realized that they would have to send her. As Polly was nine at the time, she would need someone to travel with her to Europe. In his initial request, Jefferson said that he would have to leave the arrangements to the Epses, but proposed a few acceptable options. Quote, some good lady passing from America to France or even England would be most eligible but a careful gentleman who would be so kind as to superintend her would do. In this case, some woman who has had the smallpox must attend her. A careful Negro woman, as Isabel, for instance, if she has had the smallpox, would suffice under the patronage of a gentleman. Instead of these possibilities, the Epses opted send Polly in the care of Sally Hemings, who was around the age of 14 at the time. Though both contemporary commentators in the person of Abigail Adams, who met Sally and Polly upon their arrival in England, and later students of history, have questioned why the Epses entrusted Polly to the care of someone so young. Enslaved individuals as young as 10 years old were expected to labor on the plantation. From historian John Chester Miller, quote, Considering the size of his total labor force, Jefferson made extensive use of child labor. Between the ages of 10 and 16, before they were sent into the fields, boys and girls were employed in spinning, weaving, and manufacturing nails. A lengthy period of childhood as we think of it in the 21st century industrialized world hardly existed for free individuals given that the age of consent in Virginia at the time was 10, but especially for enslaved individuals in the late 18th century, childhood was a very short period of time before they were expected to transition to the same duties and work as adults. Now, part of Abigail Adams's objections may have come from the convention of the time that, as described by historian Cynthia Kerner, quote, respectable girls and young women could not travel either near or far without the supervision and protection of a trusted escort. And a quote-unquote trusted escort, in Adams's mind, was more likely along the lines that Jefferson had outlined in his letter in 1785. Given what we know of the concern that the Epses had for Polly and the protection that they had provided, it is difficult to believe that they would have sent her with Sally if they had any qualms about Sally's capabilities of escorting Polly. Upon their arrival in England, it wasn't immediately clear that Sally would be proceeding on to France with Polly. Indeed, in his letter to Epps in 1785, initially requesting them to send Polly, Jefferson had asserted that, quote, 
The woman need not come further than Havre, Lorient, Nantes, or whatever other port she should end at, because I would go there for the child myself, and the person could return to Virginia directly. Indeed, Abigail Adams shared with Jefferson the captain's opinion, quote, that Hemings would be of so little service that he had better carry her back with him on the ship that had transported the two from America. This, however, would have put Sally in danger. Had Sally been white, even the suggestion of such an action would have been dismissed as wildly inappropriate. A 14-year-old girl, unescorted, on a ship full of men crossing the Atlantic. However, the captain and Abigail Adams were most likely thinking of the alternate scenario, the widow Jefferson and a 14-year-old girl together without a chaperone. As Gordon Reed notes, there was a notion at the time that, quote, rather than let people drift into a circumstance where the character of an individual male had to be tested or where the preferences of young female were left unchecked, steps were taken to ensure that people were never in questionable circumstances. Jefferson, however, seems to have seen no problem with the idea of having Sally come to Paris. And why should he? The Hemings family was a familiar part of his household in Virginia, and having been in France for a few years now, he may have welcomed the idea of having another person from Monticello in his household at the Hôtel de l'Union. As we now know, there was reason to be concerned about what might happen with Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings living under the same roof, alone. Polly would not remain with Jefferson in Paris for long before she was sent off to school with her sister Martha. As there might have been questions about Sally, had she gone off with Polly due to her, like her brother James, not being officially registered with the French government upon her arrival, Sally would stay with Jefferson. But what exactly her role was in the household at the time is a bit unclear. Again, from Gordon Reed, quote, Having no apparent role in the operations of the residence for long stretches of time, she, Sally, was essentially cast as an observer, watching what other people did to make things run smoothly at the place. From her perspective, that may not have been at all a bad thing, rather a source of immense joy as her non-essential status left her free to experience her new surroundings in more of her own way. It was a transition period for Sally, quote, from doing a job that was closely associated with young slave children to playing a more adult role. We can only speculate on how this process was for Sally, taking place in a new environment quite different from anything that she had previously experienced. It does seem, however, that this time set her up for what her role would ultimately be at Monticello. Like her brother, though, there was not necessarily a guarantee that Sally would return to enslavement in Virginia. Both James and Sally Hemings could have made a living in Paris. Certainly, one has to wonder, with James hiring a tutor to learn more formal French, whether that was his ultimate plan, to put his culinary training and the connections that he had made while working in Paris to use to support himself as a free man. Sally, meanwhile, had hobnobbed with the upper crust of Parisian society, accompanying Jefferson's daughter Patsy to balls as a lady's maid. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, the fashion of having African and mixed race servants gave her an advantage if she sought work as a femme de chambre. Failing that, she might have worked as a seamstress. Ultimately, though, both Hemingses would return with Jefferson to Monticello. For Sally's part, her son Madison wrote in his memoir that as the time approached for Jefferson's departure, she discovered that she was pregnant and, quote, refused to return with him deciding that she wanted to take her chances at her and their child being free in France. Jefferson, however, quote, promised her extraordinary privileges and made a solemn pledge that her children should be freed at the age of 21 years. 
that we have no way of knowing for certain exactly why she ultimately agreed to return with Jefferson. One point that Gordon Reed brings up in her work that is worthy of consideration as we ponder Sally's possible thought process is the societal expectations of the time for women. As she writes, quote, Having sex with a man and going to death's door in order to bear children by him was thought to be a woman's duty. The challenges of motherhood were even more difficult for enslaved mothers, who carried with them a constant fear that their children would be sold or given away. As a soon-to-be mother, Sally would have to think of how to support her child. Would she be able to find work that would also allow her to raise her child? Could she find a man in Paris who would support them? What would a life of freedom look like in France? It could be that Sally, as we have all done at one time or another, decided to opt for the devil she knew. She knew Jefferson. She knew that he could provide for her and her children. She knew what life was like at Monticello. She knew that she would have her family there to support her as well. It was a risk, as she would have known that Jefferson was under no legal obligation to fulfill his part of the agreement. However, she also knew Jefferson. He had been in her life for the entirety of her life to that point. One can imagine how she would have arrived at the decision that risking trusting Jefferson was less of a risk than the uncertainty of building a life for herself and her unborn child in France. There's also the possibility that there was a genuine affection between the two. Certainly, one has to ask why Jefferson who could have chosen any of the women that he enslaved as a companion or a sexual partner, wanted Sally Hemings specifically. In the living arrangements established upon their return from France, Sally would be a visible presence in the main house, though she had little interaction with guests. If Jefferson had wanted, he could have established her at a house at one of his nearby farms and visited as often as he liked. However, he wanted Sally Hemings as a part of his daily domestic life. Even when it might have made Jefferson's life easier in the face of criticism, and Jefferson was a person who actively worked to avoid criticism, he did not change the situation with Sally, and she remained tending to his chambers until he passed away. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here, so let's close out this section with a quote from Gordon Reed. Quote, Whatever the notion that Hemings and Jefferson may have loved each other makes us think of them as individuals. The idea of their love has no power to change the basic reality of slavery's essential inhumanity. As for James Hemings, he too decided to return with Jefferson to the United States, but his situation was a bit different. While we have more evidence in primary documents as to Jefferson's reasons for wanting James Hemings to return, namely that he had had James trained as a French chef to serve in his household and wanted that to continue upon his return to the States. In order to understand James's reasons for agreeing to return, we must understand that when Jefferson left France in 1789, his plan was to return to continue to serve as U.S. Minister to France. With that, it was expected that James would return with him, though Sally would likely remain at Monticello. Thus, for James, the decision wasn't as much of a now-or-never proposition. If he came back to Paris with Jefferson, he would yet again have the possibility of obtaining his freedom and remaining. In the meantime, he would continue to earn pay from Jefferson that might make his transition to life as a free man in Paris a bit easier. However, once they arrived back in Virginia, Jefferson was greeted with the news that the new president, George Washington, was asking him to join his cabinet as the first Secretary of State. Jefferson's acceptance of this post meant that James Hemings would not go back to Paris, but rather would travel with Jefferson to establish his new household in New York City, the capital of the nation at that time. 
For Hemings, a key difference in this change of plans is that now he would be going with Jefferson to yet another slave state instead of the land of freedom that France could have been for James. At some point, however, James Hemings had another ace up his sleeve to play. It's not clear as to when exactly they came to an agreement, whether it was back in Paris or sometime after the return to the States. But Thomas Jefferson and James Hemings reached an understanding that Hemings would get his freedom if he trained another person at Monticello in French cuisine. James would remain in Jefferson's service during his tenure as Secretary of State, even when the capital moved to Philadelphia. Unlike President Washington, who was so concerned about the gradual emancipation statute in the state of Pennsylvania that he made up reasons for the enslaved people in his household to return to Mount Vernon every six months, Jefferson was so unconcerned that he and Hemings would remain together in Philadelphia for long periods of time. The deal, whether it was made at the time that Jefferson was preparing to leave the State Department or it had been agreed to earlier, was put in writing on September 15, 1793. Though the document did not have any legal standing, and it was likely that it came at the insistence of Hemings rather than Jefferson's suggestion, the written deal between Jefferson and Hemings bound Jefferson by his honor to fulfill his obligation to Hemings, especially as it was witnessed by a Frenchman who served as a part of Jefferson's household in Philadelphia and for whom Jefferson had a great amount of respect. Upon their return to Monticello, James began to train his younger brother Peter as a French chef. It is quite possible that Peter saw this as a stepping stone for him as he saw that James's training was leading to his freedom and establishing himself in a lucrative professional career as a free man. Whether they established a close bond at this point or they had been close previously, it does seem that Peter had a great respect for his brother as he named one of his sons after James. Though Jefferson may have been reluctant, in February 1796, he fulfilled his side of the bargain and signed the deed of manumission for James Hemings. When Hemings left Monticello at the end of the month, Jefferson gave him $30 to help him on his way. James initially tried to make his way in Philadelphia, hoping that the contacts that he had established there while serving in Jefferson's household would help him to find work. He ultimately decided to take advantage of his freedom by, quote, embarking upon a period of travel apparently within the United States and overseas. We know that he returned to Paris for a time and likely traveled to Spain as well. I share Gordon Reed's sentiments that, quote, the most maddening aspect of James Hemings's story is that both his voice and the conversations he had with his family and others are lost to us. One can only imagine what this experience was like for him. And indeed, James Hemings was not alone in approaching newfound freedom in this way. Immediately after the Civil War, it seems that formerly enslaved individuals also took to traveling. As Gordon Reed succinctly puts it, quote, freedom meant movement. James Hemings did make his way back to Baltimore while Jefferson was serving as vice president and was still there when Jefferson was elected the third president of the United States. As he was preparing his household, Jefferson wrote to a white acquaintance in Baltimore asking him to approach Hemings about serving as his chef at the president's house. Now, the problem was the way Jefferson did this, as it seems that Hemings took offense. He was a free man. Why didn't Jefferson just write to him personally? Instead, Jefferson employed a similar method to how he had done while Hemings had still been enslaved to summon him back when Jefferson had need of him. Hemings sent back word for Jefferson to write to him directly with an offer as well as what the conditions of his employment would be. Upon receipt of this message, Jefferson then took offense. Hadn't he paid for Hemings' training? Hadn't he treated him well? Was this loyalty? Besides, he didn't have time to play around. As we discussed, 
With the delayed resolution of the election of 1800, Jefferson had no time to spare. Thus, he worked through other intermediaries to hire Honoré Julien, a French chef who was in the U.S. Like with Hemings, Jefferson did not directly write to this white man to hire him to serve. Thus, James Hemings would miss out on the opportunity of becoming the first African American to serve as the chef at the president's house. Still, we should remember, as noted by Gordon Reed, quote, After all these years, Hemings undoubtedly had complex feelings about Jefferson, and it is likely that Jefferson had complex feelings about him as well. It could hardly have been otherwise. Despite their disagreement, Jefferson would hire Hemings to cook at Monticello while he was there during the congressional recess in the late summer of 1801. Though this was a short-term gig, it did provide James with an opportunity to visit with his family. Unfortunately for everyone, when Hemings left in September, it was likely the last time he was seen alive by any of his family members. In late October or early November, Jefferson received word that James, who, quote, had been delirious for some days previous, had died by suicide. The report that Jefferson received was that Hemings had been drinking heavily prior to, but the president interpreted this news as evidence that Hemings, quote, was not truly prepared for freedom, and, quote, if he, Hemings, was not prepared, then none of Jefferson's slaves was prepared. In the end, not freeing them was a true blessing. With a 21st century understanding of mental health, we can better understand the mental and emotional strain that a life in enslavement, and then, even when freed, facing systemic racism everywhere he went, may have caused for James. Also, unlike Martin or Robert, it doesn't seem that James ever had a wife or family. Though some thrive with solitude, to others, it is a painful experience emotionally. Whatever the reason for the loss, James Hemings's memory would be preserved in the Hemings family as, quote, the name James was given to several nephews and passed down the family, perhaps long after all memory of the man had been lost. In his sadly short life, James Hemings had experiences shared by few of his contemporaries, no matter their background. He was much more well-traveled than many Americans of the time. He'd been trained as a French chef by the experts in their native land, and he had obtained his freedom from slavery. His is a quite unique story. Before we turn back to Sally Hemings, I'd like to take a few moments to quickly address a couple of her siblings. There was one other Hemings who left Monticello in the 1790s. Thinia Hemings, one of Sally's older sisters who had worked in the household at Monticello since she and her family were brought there, was sold along with her five daughters to Jefferson's friend and colleague, James Monroe, in 1794. It is believed that the sale may have come at Thinia's request and that her partner, possibly her husband and or the father of her children, was either enslaved on Monroe's plantation or a plantation nearby. As Monroe was serving as U.S. Minister to France at the time and just completed the sale prior to his departure, Thinney and her children were at times hired out. Unfortunately, while hired out to a relative of Monroe's, Thinney passed away just a year after being sold in 1795. Monroe, after hearing the news, wrote that, quote, she is an irreparable loss. As for Peter Hemings, in addition to being trained as a French chef by his brother, he also learned how to brew beer from a brewer originally from London who had moved to Virginia. By the time Jefferson retired from the presidency in 1809, this would come to be one of his primary responsibilities at Monticello. However, if Peter Hemings had hoped that he might follow in the footsteps of his brothers Robert and James and obtain his freedom through his trades, he would be sorely mistaken. 
Despite being of the Wales-Hemmings lineage, Peter would continue to be enslaved by Jefferson for the remainder of Jefferson's life. We'll expand on that a bit further shortly. Before we do that, though, we must look at one more of Elizabeth Hemings's children, the last in this generation that we'll discuss. As mentioned earlier, John Hemings was the child of the white chief carpenter at Monticello during the 1770s, Joseph Nielsen and Elizabeth. Fast forward to the 1790s, while Jefferson was serving as Secretary of State, he directed from afar construction work at Monticello, and in one of his letters, providing instructions to his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, Jefferson said that he wanted John Hemings, who at that point was 17 years old, to work with the white professional joiner who was currently at work on his house. Now, a joiner is someone who did any woodworking required for a house, and by having John Hemings trained in this trade, Jefferson would have a valuable resource on hand for what he knew would be a lifetime of projects around his home. For John, as the example of his brothers had proven, being trained in a sought-after trade would provide him with a way of making a living should he obtain his freedom. However, from this point forward, the only Hemingses that had the possibility of being freed by Jefferson during his lifetime were his children by Sally Hemings. Sally would not live in either New York City or Philadelphia while Jefferson served first as Secretary of State, then later as Vice President in the 1790s, nor would she live permanently in the President's house in Washington, D.C. during his presidency, though Gordon Reed notes that she may have visited him there as, quote, there was periodic traffic between Jefferson's two households during his eight years in Washington. However, His first retirement to Monticello in the mid-1790s, as well as his frequent travels back while in office, provided opportunities for Jefferson and Hemings to be together. And for the most part, Hemings would remain at Monticello following her return from Paris. Sally's first child, the one conceived prior to Thomas becoming Secretary of State, did not last long and passed away in 1790. Following Jefferson's return to Monticello, Sally gave birth to a daughter named Harriet in October 1795. Harriet's naming marked a beginning of a trend with Sally's children that was at odds with the Hemings family's tradition of perpetuating certain family names. Harriet was not a name from either the Hemings or the Wales tradition. Rather, Harriet Hemings was named after Harriet Randolph, who was the younger sister of Jefferson's son-in-law. Harriet Randolph was a frequent guest at Monticello at the time, and Jefferson was quite fond of the young woman. Thus, though Sally Hemings had been able to influence the ultimate destiny of their children, Thomas Jefferson would leave his mark on each by bestowing upon them a name that was important to him. Gordon Reed notes that this was the case with his late wife Martha as well. Their children also had been named after members of the Jefferson family rather than the Wales family. Sadly, Harriet did not last long and passed away in early 1797 as her father was preparing to assume office as Vice President of the United States. As Vice Presidents in the early Republic were often not needed in the nation's capital, Three children were conceived during Jefferson's tenure as vice president. William Beverly Hemings was born on April 1, 1798, and was named after either Thomas Mann Randolph's nephew, William Beverly, or, more likely, after the famous Virginia leader, William Beverly, who had negotiated a treaty back in 1744 that Jefferson saw as a key moment in Virginia history. At the time the child, who had come to be known commonly as Beverly, was born, Jefferson had been engaged in a defense of his notes on the state of Virginia, and as Jefferson was actively engaged in research on Virginia history as a part of that defense, William Beverly was likely prominent in his mind. Though Beverly would ultimately live to adulthood, Sally suffered the loss of another child who died shortly after her birth in 1799. 
In May 1801, however, shortly after Jefferson had assumed office as the third president of the United States, Sally gave birth once more to a girl who was also named Harriet. The second Harriet would fare better than her sister and survive childhood. Jefferson's assuming the presidency, though, would come to impact the family in new ways. Sally Hemings' status at Monticello and her relationship with Thomas Jefferson was not a complete secret in and around Charlottesville. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, People in Charlottesville and its environs have been talking about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson for nearly 10 years, gossiping as neighbors will. Likewise, though much has been made about Jefferson's flirtatious relationship with Mariah Cosway, as Gordon Reed explains, quote, Far more people on American soil in the 1790s knew about Jefferson and Hemings than knew about Jefferson and Cosway. Thus, with his elevated prominence in the public spotlight, it is not surprising that as early as September 1801, we start to see stories about quote-unquote Mr. J and his multiracial children. As we've already discussed in episode 3.18, it was James Callender's article in the September 1st, 1802 issue of the Richmond Recorder that really brought Sally Hemings to the nation's attention. Though we have no way of knowing for certain the impact that this had on Sally, we can imagine that this shattered any illusions that she might have had of being able to carry on a completely private life at Monticello. Given how integrated the Hemings family as a whole was in Jefferson's life, it's difficult to imagine how it ever could have remained a secret. Indeed, though Sally did not reside in D.C., two women who were related by marriage to the Hemings family had been brought to Washington to learn French cuisine from Honoré Julien, the chef at the president's house. Though a majority of the domestic servants at the president's house were white women, an unusual demographic composition from that of Jefferson's other households over the years, the presence of a handful of enslaved women still in their teens may quite possibly have contributed to rumors that Jefferson, quote, had an African harem for his sexual pleasure that spread around the time that the Sally Hemings story broke. Ultimately, Jefferson would survive the controversy to be reelected to a second term, which brings us to where this episode began. Madison Hemings was born in January 1805, and, as our opening quote suggests, the story is that Dolly Madison requested that the child be named after her husband. It does seem like the name created a little of a competition at Monticello, for nearly a year to the day of Madison Hemings's birth, Martha Randolph gave birth to a child that she named James Madison Randolph. As Martha's child was born at the president's house, Jefferson was present for his birth, though he had not been there for the birth of his own son. The birth of Thomas and Sally's last child in 1808, Thomas Easton Hemings, who was named after a Randolph cousin of whom Jefferson was fond, would in fact prove to be the only time that he would be present for the birth of any of his children with Hemings. Going back to James Madison Randolph for a second, though this birth has often been cited as the first child born in the president's house, that honor actually goes to the child of Ursula Granger one of the enslaved women that Jefferson brought with him to Washington when he became president. She was pregnant upon her arrival in the city and gave birth to her child at the president's house at some point prior to March 22, 1802. Jefferson's final retirement from public office in 1809 would change much, both on a personal level as well as a national one. But upon his return to Monticello, it meant for the former president that he would return to a life surrounded by members of the Hemings family. For the Hemingses, though, life at Monticello would not be what it was prior to 1801. While Jefferson was away in Washington, there was relatively little for the Hemings women to do in terms of their daily responsibilities in the household. Jefferson's return, however, brought not only Martha Randolph and her children to live full-time at Monticello, 
but also was the beginning of a constant deluge of visitors for the next nearly two decades. The enslaved women that Jefferson had trained under Honoré Julien took charge of the kitchen at Monticello from Peter Hemings and would have to prepare multiple meals a day for the residents and the guests. Meanwhile, other members of the Hemings family would be tasked with, quote, changing linen, making beds, and lighting fires for guests. Beyond just serving guests who stayed at Monticello, they also had to deal with people who would come to the grounds and, quote, peer through the window panes, trying to glean all they could about Jefferson and his life. All of the residents on the mountaintop at Monticello were now under a magnifying glass. It does seem, however, that Sally was by and large able to focus her attention on raising their children. As they grew older, all three of her male children, Beverly, Madison, and Easton, would serve as apprentices to their uncle, John Hemings. In this role, not only did they learn a trade under the influence of someone who became a surrogate father in a way that Jefferson, with so much public scrutiny, could not openly display, they also traveled with John Hemings at Jefferson's direction to work at his retreat, Poplar Forest. We can imagine that this extended time away from Monticello started preparing them for a permanent detachment from that estate, which had been their family's home for decades. In addition to John Hemings's role as chief carpenter and mentor to his sons, Jefferson would come to rely on other members of the Hemings family in new roles in his retirement years. Joseph Fawcett, the son of Mary Hemings and William Fawcett, started working at Monticello as a nail boy in Jefferson's Nail Factory and distinguished himself enough to become the foreman of the factory by 1799. However, Jefferson had larger plans for Fawcett. Beginning at age 16, Fawcett began training as a blacksmith. Just because Jefferson thought highly of Fawcett did not mean that he was always considerate of him. Indeed, Fawcett's wife, Edith, was one of the enslaved women that Jefferson brought with him to the president's house to be trained in French cuisine. In a time before modern communication and against their will, Joseph and Edith were separated for long periods of time, and at times, even when Jefferson returned to Monticello, Edith would be ordered to remain in Washington. In 1806, Joseph had enough and escaped from Monticello. He made his way to the president's house and to Edith, but the two were not together long before the slave catcher that Jefferson sent after Fawcett apprehended him. Though Jefferson was not happy with Fawcett for some time, ultimately, his knowledge of Fawcett's skill outweighed any displeasure over the escape, and less than a year later, Fawcett was made head of the blacksmith shop at Monticello. For the remainder of Jefferson's life, quote, Fawcett was at the very center of activity on the plantation. He made things that were indispensable to life on a farm in the early 19th century. In addition, faucet services were available to other farmers and residents in the vicinity, and the blacksmith shop, quote, was a business that turned a modest profit for Jefferson. It made money for Fawcett, too. Both Jefferson and Fawcett would have need of any money they could get their hands on, but we'll get to that shortly. As with Fawcett, Burwell Colbert, a son of Betty Brown, would also suffer from long separations from his wife. Like his uncles Robert and James Hemings, Colbert was at an early age put in the role of Jefferson's personal servant, though he also gained experience as a painter and glazer. Unlike Robert and James, however, Jefferson did not bring Colbert with him to the president's house to serve as his attendant, instead hiring a white man for the role. Also, whereas Robert and James had been given the freedom to leave Monticello and find other work when Jefferson did not need them, Colbert, at Jefferson's order, was given money from the overseer at Monticello as needed while Jefferson was away. Though he did not have that type of freedom that the earlier generation of Hemingses had enjoyed, Colbert did build a life for himself at Monticello with his wife, Critta. 
Once Jefferson retired from the presidency and started traveling regularly to Poplar Forest to get away from the onslaught of visitors at Monticello, Colbert, as Jefferson's personal servant, would also be forced to travel to Poplar Forest, separating him for good periods of time from Crita. Moreover, the only word that we know he received about his family was secondhand as members of the Jefferson family wrote back and forth between Monticello and Poplar Forest. It was in this method that Colbert learned of his wife's death. She had died at Monticello while he was serving Jefferson at Poplar Forest. Colbert would continue as an enslaved servant to Jefferson until the former president's last day. Wormley Hughes, another child of Betty Brown, grew to adulthood working in various capacities at Monticello, including stints in the nail factory and on various building projects. At one point, he was put in charge of the stables at Monticello, but around the time that Jefferson retired from the presidency, Hughes became the head gardener. Because of Jefferson's love of gardening, the two would spend a good amount of time together laying out flower beds and gardens. Hughes was married to Ursula Granger, the enslaved woman who gave birth to the first child ever born in the White House. They, too, would remain enslaved by Jefferson up until his last day. For two of Sally Hemings' children, however, they would attain their freedom prior to their father's death. By Virginia law, the four Hemings' children were technically white, and in a society with ingrained legal and societal inequity, the only way that they could live truly free at the time was if they lived as white citizens. However, in order to do so, they would have to abandon all ties to their past, including those to both their father and their mother. As the oldest, Beverly would be the first to leave Monticello in 1822, around the age of 24. Though we have no way of knowing for certain, it is likely that Beverly used the next few months to make arrangements for his 21-year-old sister Harriet, who left a few months later on a stagecoach and with $50 in hand, as provided by Jefferson. This sum was a large amount at the time, the equivalent of around $900 in modern currency. The official record would be that the two, quote-unquote, ran away, but it was the fulfillment of Jefferson's promise to their mother. With his sons, Jefferson had tried to prepare them with trade skills, while Harriet had been trained on how to, quote, spin and weave in Jefferson's small textile operation, which would give her skills necessary to manage a household as a wife and mother. We can only speculate as to whether Jefferson would have followed a similar approach with Madison and Easton when they came of age, but time ultimately ran out for the now octogenarian former president. As we'll discuss in more detail in his post-presidency episode, Jefferson's financial situation was in shambles by the time of his death. Though he had never done well at managing his personal finances, between his debt and bad economic conditions, Jefferson was constantly on the verge of financial ruin towards the end of his life. Thus. When it came to drafting his will, he had to be very deliberate for, as noted by Gordon Reed, quote, creditors' interests took precedence over emancipations, so the list of people to be freed had to be very small and the people on it chosen with extreme care. In the end, there were only five names listed. Burwell Colbert, John Hemings, Joseph Fawcett, Madison Hemings, and Easton Hemings. Colbert would instantly be granted his freedom, along with $300. John Hemings and Fawcett would receive their freedom a year after Jefferson's passing, and in order to allow them to use their respective trades to earn a living, they would be given all of the tools in their respective shops. Madison and Easton, however, were a bit trickier. As Jefferson did not want to reveal his relationship to the two young men, he wrote his will in such a way as to suggest that they were only being freed because they were so close to their uncle John. Thus, Their freedom was conditional on them serving as apprentices to John until they turned 21 years old. 
at which time they would be freed. Now, at the point of Jefferson's death in 1826, Madison had already turned 21. Thus, the execution of the will meant that Madison was instantly freed. Likewise, as evidence that the family knew that the two were Jefferson's sons, Easton too was instantly freed when the will was executed. And, as noted by Gordon Reed, quote, it is almost inconceivable that the family would have done this without Jefferson's prior instruction. The problem with this emancipation, however, is that there were only five names on it. John Hemings and his four nephews may have been freed, but none of the rest of their families, be it parents, siblings, spouses, or children, were likewise freed. In January 1827, an auction was staged to sell off the remainder of the enslaved individuals from Monticello, with the notable exceptions of Betty Brown, Critta Hemings, and Sally Hemings. Betty, as noted previously, would be able to live out the rest of her days on the mountain. Critta was sold to Jefferson's grandson, Francis Wales Epps, and allowed to live first with her husband, Zachariah Bowles, then, after his death, was set up on a 96-acre farm just north of Charlottesville to live out the rest of her days. The auction itself was awful, but a more guaranteed worse fate for all those still enslaved on the mountain was avoided. Jeff Randolph, Jefferson's grandson who helped him administer his estate in his later years, received an offer from a planner in Georgia to purchase a majority of the enslaved people from Monticello. Randolph, knowing of the harsh conditions for enslaved individuals in the Deep South, refused the offer. It also seems that there was an active effort to keep the prices of the enslaved individuals as low as possible in order to allow family members who were free to purchase their relatives. For example, Peter Hemings was purchased for a dollar by his nephew and was subsequently set free, working as a tailor for the rest of his life. Despite this, some members of the Hemings family were not so lucky. Joseph Fawcett worked with members of the Hemings clan as well as with people in the white community of Charlottesville to arrange for his wife and children to be bought by folks who would then sell him his family members back once he was in a position to do so. In this way, Fawcett was able to get some of his family back, but not all. The white man who bought his son Peter broke his promise to Fawcett and instead kept Peter as his property. There was no legal recourse for Fawcett to save his son. Meanwhile, his daughters Maria and Isabella were sold to people that Fawcett didn't know and lost to their parents, as well as to history. Fawcett's daughter Patsy was also sold off, but she ran away afterwards. She did not rejoin the rest of her family, and we have no clue as to her ultimate fate. Fawcett would spend the remainder of his life trying to reunite his family, successfully gaining ownership of five of his children and four grandchildren before the Fawcetts moved around 1840 to Ohio. Before their passing, Joseph and Edith Fawcett were reunited with their son Peter. His years as a free man would not be happy ones for John Hemings. His eyesight had been growing ever worse for a number of years, and he ultimately got to the point that he could not practice his craft. An even harsher blow, though, was the death of his wife Priscilla in 1830. After her death, he stopped working and started to drink heavily. John would live only three years more after her passing. Burwell Colbert's freedom, however, would allow him an opportunity to establish himself as a painter and glazer, working both at the University of Virginia and in the greater Charlottesville community, as well as remarry a 20-year-old free woman and start a new family. This did not mean that Burwell, too, did not suffer heartaches as portions of his family from his first marriage remained enslaved. Despite the professions of the Randolphs that they valued family connections, in 1836, Martha Randolph gave Colbert's daughter Martha Ann as a, quote-unquote, gift to her son Lewis and his new wife. 
As the newlyweds were planning to settle in Arkansas, this meant that it was quite possible that Burwell would never see his daughter again. Though Wormley Hughes was not one of the five set free in Jefferson's will, Martha Randolph and her son Jeff made sure that Wormley, his wife Ursula, and seven of their children, after being sold to various people in Charlottesville, were reunited at the Randolph home Edge Hill within a few days. For two years, Jeff Randolph successfully worked to purchase 18 more members of the Hughes extended family. And eight years after Jefferson's death, Martha directed that Wormley be quote-unquote given his time, which meant that he was freed without going through the formal legal process of emancipation. Hughes continued working for two more generations of the Jefferson Randolph family as a free man and passed away in 1858. That brings us back to Sally Hemings. After Jefferson's death, though still technically enslaved, Hemings and her two sons, Madison and Easton, rented a house on Main Street in Charlottesville, which was close to her sister Mary. Ultimately, both sons would move out and purchase their own homes, and Sally would end up living with Madison. At the same time as Martha Randolph gave Wormley Hughes his time, she did the same with Sally. Thus, she lived out the remaining years of her life as a nominally free woman in downtown Charlottesville, passing away in 1835. Though after 1802, Sally Hemings was the most well-known enslaved person in the United States, there's still so much that we do not know about this individual who spent decades intimately linked with the third president of the United States. Likewise, though through the work of historians and archaeologists, much has been recovered of the family history of the Hemingses, there is still so much that we may never know. Even two of Jefferson's children, Beverly and Harriet, disappear into the white world of their time and are lost to the family's history. Easton went on to have children and lived for a while as a free black man, but ultimately made the decision to join the white community when, quote, it became apparent that his children's lives would be severely circumscribed if they continued to live as people of color. Both Easton and Madison ultimately moved to Ohio with their families. Easton passed away in 1856, while Madison lived to see the nation that his father served as president split apart and come back together. In March 1873, his account of his history, as well as the history of the Hemings family, was published in the Pike County Republican in Ohio. His claims about his parentage, however, would be denied by Jefferson's white family, as well as students of history who sought to put Jefferson on a pedestal until DNA evidence in the late 1990s corroborated the Hemings' claims. As we have seen in this episode, though so many over time have tried to leave them out of the story, without discussing the Hemings family, we would not be able to completely understand Jefferson and his life. This family, and certain members of it in particular, were part of his day-to-day life for the majority of his days. The complex ties of enslavement and blood that joined all of them together in their lives continue to join them in the annals of history. And this family that was present for, but separate from, some of the key events of the early Republic tells us much about that time in our nation's history and the legacy that we struggle with, even in the present day. With that, it's time to wrap up this episode. Special thanks again to Country Boy for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out One Mike, a Black History podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A link to his podcast, as well as source notes for this episode, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Special thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As I'm hoping to pick up the pace and making my way through the Jefferson series, his assistance is going to be invaluable. If you would like to get Andrew's assistance for your podcast or any other audio editing project you may be working on, he can be reached at p 
P-A-N-K-A-C-E place. That's all one word at gmail.com. His email address can also be found on the Source Notes page for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me via email at Presidency's Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on social media if you don't already. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. If you like what you've heard thus far, please take a moment to leave the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other platform that has that capability. Ratings and reviews help us to reach a larger audience and provide a great testimonial as to why someone searching for a new podcast should give presidencies a try. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.